Hi, and welcome to part two of my chat with Jeff Sutton. I'm delighted to say that part one not only proved very popular, but there was also lots of lovely feedback. So thank you to everyone listening and a particular thank you to everyone who sent feedback. And if you enjoyed part one, then I'm delighted to say that in part two, as they used to say on the radio, the music and the stories just keep on coming. So settle back, relax as we move into the 90s. I'm going to move you into the 90s. So take <laughs> us through that. <laughs> yeah, 90s, I moved from the Mail to the Mirror, which was sort of a lot of movement, actually, for the first half of the 90s. So I got married. Arsenal won the league in 1989, obviously. And also, I'm going to mention it, one of my best friends, Phil, died of meningitis, which was when a friend dies, very significant thing. And still is. It sort of never leaves you and was heartbreaking in many ways. Then in the 90s, I went, moved to the Mirror, and it was just a funny time, the Mirror. The Mirror was a very different place, even more hard drinking than the Mail. You know, people would go missing for days on end, and you'd find them in Vagabonds, which was a bar at the back of the office. And I was there when Robert Maxwell fell off his boat. I think the first headline was The Man Who Saved the Mirror for Maxwell, and then very quickly discovered that he'd stolen all the pension money. One of the stories was that Maxwell was bugging all the staff and I ended up going round with a photographer in the basement of the uh, mirror offices and found the bugging office and the ex-top who was the sort of head spy. You're joking. No, no, it's incredible. And he was saying, well, I'm one of you, like, I'm your mate, I drink with you. And we were like, well, no, actually, you've been bugging us. Jeez. <laughs> Obviously, when I was looking at your notes and I was thinking, you, you got out of journalism before all of the phone hacking and all of that. So he was bugging his own staff. Yeah, Maxwell was, yeah. And I don't know if he was bugging everyone or just the important people, but he um, was clearly not a good guy. But it was the Mirror was very old school and I mean, I've still got tons of friends from there. It's a good, an amazing place. And, um, you know, obviously Labour supporting, which was different. Then it all changed. So after Maxwell went, the new owners were terrible and we all started to leave and change. So I went to the Sunday Express. I went there initially as deputy news editor. So I decided that I didn't want to be on the road anymore, that I was sort of ready to go on a desk and try and be a news editor and sort of move up the ladder. I think I got fed up with being told where to go and I wanted to start telling people where to go. Would this be the equivalent, Jeff, of the sales guy who then says, right, I've time to go into management? Yeah. And I never thought I would do it. And I remember my news editor at the Mirror saying, you can't go on a news desk, you've got no discipline, which is actually true. But you just sort of have to find ways to manage your own lack of discipline, or I did. So I went to the Sunday Express and the news editor left very quickly. He's a friend of mine and he left very quickly. And then I became the news editor under Eve Pollard, who was quite a character. Still see her around. She's a force of nature. I didn't like Sunday newspapers. When you do a daily newspaper, every day's a new day. And when you do the weekly paper, so you'd come in on the Tuesday and start trying to figure out what was going to go on the front page on Saturday. And from about Thursday onwards, the night and my stomach got tighter and tighter. And then Friday was a sort of 7 a.m. till 11 midnight day. And then same on Saturday. And then on the Saturday evening, you'd find out all the stories that the other Sunday papers had got that you didn't have. So you'd end up chasing after stories like that and then getting shouted at by people. And so, and then Sunday, I was 
genuinely just exhausted, completely smacked, you know, just slept. And then on Monday, you'd start thinking again about what was going to happen on Tuesday. So I found the whole thing incredibly stressful. Yeah. And also, I mean, I know it's been exceptional, Jeff, but if you look at what's been going on recently, then what might seem like a good story or a position on the Wednesday ain't going to be where you are on the Sunday. Oh, no, exactly. It's all the time. You'd have a good story on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and it would be gone. So, yeah, it was constantly changing. And going back to Diana, I mean, one of the things that we consistently did was, you know, come Friday, Saturday, where's Diana? Because we knew that if we had a good Princess Diana story on the front, that would get us out of jail. And so, you know, there's always been a lot of debate, discussion, angst about how the press were involved with Diana's death. But we absolutely wanted to keep tabs on what she was doing all the time because... She was always a story. She was always a story and you sold papers because of it. A lot of people love Sunday papers. You know, they, that's their life and career. And I, even though you'd sort of think that it would be less stress because it's a daily paper, you know, it's every day you've got the same pressure. But actually I found that long build-up of time quite tough. So today, which was then owned by Rupert Murdoch, my old editor at the Daily Mirror, it was like a hostage swap. <laughs> so basically, my editor from the Mirror went to Today, and all the and the edit the guy who used to run Today was running the Mirror. So we all just swapped jobs. <laughs> I've got this picture of you turning up at you know dawn at a bridge, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was one of the London like, bridges, and walking across. <laughs> it was a bit like that. I, I so I joined as news editor at Today, and um, I walked in. It was like, oh, everyone's here. <laughs> It was all the old gang back together and the mirror, they'd all gone the other way. And so, um, and I loved today. It was fantastic. We were proper underdogs. We didn't have a lot of money. We were labour supporting at a time when the Tories were struggling. We had free reign to kick them every way, which way. And it was brilliant. Richard Stott was the editor who was sadly passed away, but he was just a god to me. He was brilliant. What made him so good, Jeff? He was very abrupt on the face of it, quite aggressive but had a heart of gold and was very supportive. And so I'd go in at sort of seven-ish. So I'd get all the papers the night before and read them and you'd see what you'd missed and sort of prepare for the bollocking the next day. And so I'd then go in in the morning, 7.10, I'd get in. 7.40, Richard would phone me up from his home and basically shout at me for all the stories we'd missed or the angles that we'd missed or what we'd done wrong. And then it'd be, okay, what's happening today? And so then you'd be like, right, well, we've got this, this and this. And as long as this, this, and this were okay, he was like, oh, fantastic, man. Oh, man, fantastic. And off we go. And so you got this sort of balance between the sort of fear of getting told off by him and the support of where you go next. And he was incredibly loyal and supportive of, of everyone who worked with him. When he died, he was quite young, actually, 60. He came and worked for me when I was at Microsoft at MSN. He wrote a column for MSN, yeah, because he was really interested in the internet and wanted to know how it worked. And um, so I kept the contact up with him all the way through. So he was brilliant for me and, and really good. And then I went on holiday and Murdoch closed it down. We were in Spain. I, think. I came back from the beach and uh, there were a pile of messages. Again, mobile phones weren't really a thing. So I phoned the news desk and like, what's going on? Like, why are you calling me? And they said, well, it's our last night tonight. Murdoch's closed us down. There was no inkling? None. There have been some rumours that something was going on. But I just sort of dismissed them. I didn't think that... So I thought politically he wouldn't close down a Labour-supporting paper at that point in time. But I suspect a deal was done with Blair, but I've never got to the bottom of that because the Sun then came out and supported Blair. 
So then we sort of had to try and find everyone jobs. And uh, sort of, I spent some weeks helping people get jobs at other papers. And How many people would be working on the paper then, Jeff? I think in the newsroom, there was probably around 40 plus sort of freelancers, 40, 50 overall, a couple of hundred probably. As I say, great, great bunch of people and a great team. It sounds like you've still got lots of friends in the industry. I mean, you were saying about that boss and the manner. Certainly a manner I could probably recognize in myself. But I mean, obviously, technologically, the industry has changed. But is it still a hard living, aggressive industry or has that all changed as well? Changed a lot. I mean, the, certainly the sort of the drinking cultures changed and gone. And you're not allowed to smoke in the office anymore. When I joined the mail, second time around, I went back, the, 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 I went in and started smoking at the desk. And it's ridiculous. There were like six or eight people around this, around the news desk. I was the only one who smoked, but it was okay to smoke. It's, like a, it's such an outlandish idea now. You said in your notes about there was a PC in the Daily Mail newsroom, but at what point did you go, ooh, ah, this internet thing looks interesting? After today closed, I went back to the Daily Mail and, and went on the news desk, and it was a big mistake. You shouldn't go back sometimes, and it, things had changed, and it was I just hated it. And I realised almost immediately. And so within a month, I was thinking, right, I need to get out and I'll find another job. So the internet had started to be a thing. So I was looking into it, and I'd go in... Um, you know, internet cafes and sort of look up there. And there wasn't much to look at. And in the Daily Mail newsroom, there was only one computer that had internet access. And then there was me and another guy, Bill Akes, who would have a look at it. And no one else did. No one was interested. And they thought I was looking at porn because no one had any concept of that it could be anything else. And I was reading it and talking to people. And it seemed to me that it would be the next way that newspapers, that stories would be shared and would be published. And that there was sort of opportunity there. And I got more and more sort of fascinated by it. And then a job came up as chief editor at a thing called MSN News at Microsoft. And I was, I didn't really even know what Microsoft was. I sort of looked at it and thought, yeah, that's what I want. That's it. That's sort of where I want to go. And and because I was deeply unhappy being back at the mail as well, I went for it. And best thing I ever did, really. (laughs) Was it anything like you expected? No, not at all. I mean, it, <laughs> Microsoft was literally an alien, a completely alien environment. I knew nothing. I didn't know Windows. I didn't know how to use Word. I didn't know how to do any PowerPoint. What's PowerPoint? There was a guy, a young guy called Tim Tao, who was in the office who sort of helped me. He was the one I kept like, how do you do this Word thing? How do you save a document? So Judy Givens, my boss, who was fabulous. Like the first thing I joined and we went to Winner's Triangle. That was the other thing. She said, yeah, you'll be in London. And um, for the first year, we were in Winner's Triangle, which, I'd never, again, I'd never heard of. I'd forgotten you were over at Winner's. Yeah, and it definitely wasn't London. No. It was the dull part of Reading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's saying something. <laughs> you had to go over a motorway to get to the pub. It was incredible. And so uh, we nearly got killed a few times. Always thought we had to go to the pub every day because we were journalists. So my job was to hire a team, small team, about five people who were all journalists, who were all interested in the internet, went out to Seattle and got trained up in uh, Workbench, was the tool that we used, was the publishing tool, and then set about creating a news, basically a newspaper online, which is what it sort of was. And we launched with Decision 97, so it was Tony Blair's election that was our sort of trial where we worked through that and we did that election online and we were in our little office in Winnersh with a few bottles of scotch doing, you know, you remember that night when all the conservatives like Portillo, Portillo got 
knocked out and everything. And it was an incredible night. We worked all, all night. Later that year, it was 97, Princess Diana died. So we'd been doing a lot of Diana stories because we were saying, well, does it work online the way it works in print? So if you book pictures of Diana on, on the homepage, does that get you more users? And the answer was yes. But you were literally having to work all of that stuff out. Yeah. And the, I tell you, the biggest learning was on Diana's death was because, so she, that week of grief afterwards was extraordinary. And so we started to get, we asked for and started to get people sending us their messages, of, you know, their statements of grief, your stories of Diana and how they felt and all of that sort of thing. And so we said, okay, well, in a newspaper, you've got limited space, so you can only print a few letters. So what we should do is print all of them, publish all of them. But we didn't have any mechanism to do it. So basically we had to cut and paste every single one, put them all out. But also someone shared the link into the US. And so then we got tons and tons of them. It wasn't just a few, it was tons, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And you've got to cut and paste everyone. <laughs> and we cut and paste. So our little team were cutting and pasting every single one. And that was like the light bulb moment of, oh, okay, this isn't just about publishing. This is about other people, normal people being able to publish their own. And connecting. And connecting that together. And it's like, okay, this is a different thing. So yeah, it's fantastic. Fantastic experience. And it's amazing, you know, you're bringing back memories for me because, and you think about how pioneering and also just making stuff up. So 97 was the year that I did the e-Christmas project, which was to prove that people would actually shop online. And I know we'll get onto later Bill trying to sack you, but that was one of the two mails I personally got from Bill telling me what I was doing was really stupid. <laughs> and his main point was you can't slip Christmas Day as a delivery date. <laughs> but, you know, there was a small team of us, and I can remember the first transaction coming through from Italy. There was no security on this. You could see the credit card number and everything, but it was literally how would, and having to negotiate with transport companies on delivery, and because it was all of this, okay, shop online and then standing at boards going, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I would actually like to just publicly point out that, Bill, I got that one right. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, Microsoft got quite a few things wrong like that, you know. So the other one was search. So we had search in our, under our remit. And I remember distinctly in Seattle, and I won't name the guy, but he was the head of search. And he stood up and he said, what people want is the for the top 200 search terms we need to be the best so the top 200 terms we need to be the best and if we do that we will be the best at search and i remember at the time i was in seattle and i was trying to find out where to go fly fishing at the weekend and so i was searching for where to go fly fishing at the weekend so i, I remember saying to go like you're wrong it's not the top 200 search terms it's all the rest that's important. That's the whole point. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying I was a genius or anything, but it was, to me, it was completely obvious that you needed to get the long tail, not the head. And so I would say Microsoft got that completely wrong and Google got it completely right. All of that Microsoft stuff going on, but we've skipped over the fact that you got to Havana, Jeff, which is something I've never done. Yeah, I went to Havana with Tony and it was a brilliant trip, I have to say. It was only a long weekend. And partly the music thing, or a big part was the music thing. I'd got into the whole point of Vista Social Club, desperately wanted to go. I was reading all the books about Che Guevara. And uh, I remember doing one offsite in the US where I said that Che Guevara was my hero and that all the Americans were absolutely, <laughs> what, what, he's a communist. But so we went, but what was brilliant was that we got into the nice hotel in the center of town 
which I think recently got burnt down or, or blew up. But anyway, we got into this beautiful hotel and they said, we're really sorry, but in the morning, we're not going to be able to serve you breakfast because it's May Day and it's our sort of celebration of the Revolution Day. And we all march through the city on parade. And so um, you're very welcome to join us, but we won't be serving breakfast. So it's like, get up at four or five in the morning to go and do this. And um, so we said, well, we're, we're going to be jet lagged anyway. Let's just, and we can't get breakfast. Let's, and what an interesting experience. So we marched, it's like power to the people. We marched through Havana and then through the big square. And they'd just done the handover from Fidel to Raul Castro. And so it was, I think, Raul Castro's first one as the boss, but Fidel was also there. And we all marched past, you know, sort of waving and saluting El Presidente and his brother. It was amazing. It was incredible. And was Cuba everything you expected? Yeah, it was brilliant. I loved it. Falling apart. Great people. Great music. So yeah, it was brilliant. The whole thing. I'd like to go back. I would really like to go back. Yeah, I have to say it's absolutely on our bucket list and uh, should have got there a long time ago. But that's a brilliant story. And uh, let's take a listen then to a track from, I think it's the first track again on the Buena Vista Social Club album that has a bit of a solo that you like. So you can tell us about that in a second. Here it is. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps. Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly what was going through my head. You know, you look at it that says, I mean, you talk about music, painting pictures uh, and feeling and uh, just remarkable. It is a trumpet, I'm assuming, but that trumpet solo is beautiful. But why that particular solo, Jeff? I love it. I've always loved it. And the, the reason is, to me, it's sort of perfection. And it's a perfection that I'm not sure I could ever attain in anything. And so the for, for the ability to be that perfect with something is just something amazing. And so I, I just love it. And one day I'll get the music tattooed on me somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, yeah, I love it. It's brilliant. So to say the least, Jeff, a action-packed and, uh, and filled 90s. But before we move off it, we should at least talk about probably the most significant event, yeah. which is you became a dad during this decade. 
Yeah, well, I did twice with Tony and um, two very different births, actually, and, and very different experiences. So my daughter, Helen, was born in uh, 1994. And apart from keeping us waiting, it was uh, a wonderful event. She came out, I burst into tears and she had me from there, really, <laughs> and has carried on in that way. She's now uh, 28, just got married in the summer to the gentlest, nicest Millwall fan. <laughs> Uh, I've ever met a guy called Sean, who's a lovely chap. So um, great. And then Daniel came along in 1997 while I was at Microsoft, actually, not long after I'd started. And um, that was a very different experience. He came out, but essentially stopped breathing, uh, sort of oh, went wow. sort of a purple color and there was panic and chaos all around. And we didn't really know what was going on. It was very traumatic. And it turned out he had congenital heart disease. And so the first period of his life was incredibly challenging for everybody. He had three lots of open heart surgery before the age of five. He was a few, weeks, a few weeks old when he had his first and then a few months old when he had his second. And so he's always had a lot of um, sort of health challenges all the way through his life and has dealt with them in the most extraordinary way, in my opinion. I mean, he is full of courage and resilience and deals with everything. And, and you wouldn't believe it. He's 25 now. He's <laughs> six foot three and good strong boy he was in hospital not so long ago again but um you know he's had various episodes and challenges all the way through but he's dealt with it all magnificently and one of the things that i'm very very proud of my children for is that the pair of them are very close they support each other very well great and you know they very much look after each other and so you know they're beautiful kids and, and i'm very proud of them I, I was thinking of some music and in another world the songs for them would be slightly different so for helen it would be Let's Go Fly Our Kite from Mary Poppins because <laughs> that's what I used to sing to her when I was trying to get her off to sleep. Oh, brilliant. Baby. And then Daniel was crazy about Barney when he was a little kid, Barney the dinosaur. Yep. But I couldn't inflict that on anyone. And so uh, <laughs> I was thinking about the theme tune from the cartoon Arthur. I don't know if you've ever seen that. But yes. The theme tune is by Ziggy Marley and it's completely brilliant. What a wonderful kind of days. Those were my sort of songs for my kids from the 90s. And uh, as I say, I'm uh, immensely proud of them and, and everything they've achieved. That's brilliant. Well, we'll get those songs on the playlist. And uh, I guess it's uh, Greater Love Hath No Father to Embrace a Millwall Fan. And they've even made um, Helen a lioness. So she's, as well as coming to Arsenal with me, she also goes to Millwall occasionally. Wow. Regularly. And... Uh, yeah, nobody likes us. We don't care. That's brilliant. Right, sir. And so with that, into the noughties, I guess in many ways the Microsoft years, but uh, take us through that, Jeff. So MSN News, having launched it, we closed it. MSN became a portal site and I sort of went on to run MSN UK. So my boss, Judy, started to run first EMEA and then she ran international and I sort of followed her along. So I went from um, running the UK to running EMEA and UK was a fantastic time and a fantastic team. We were based in Covent Garden and then Soho and great people, still good friends. We still get together, not enough, but every now and again. And yeah, we had the coolest products on the planet. So we had Messenger, which... Uh, Everyone was using, like my kids were on Messenger. Everyone was on Messenger. I saw Stormzy on um, Graham Norton the other day saying that 
His name, Stormzy, came from, that was his MSN messenger name. You are joking. No, no, no. Oh, He's that like, is fantastic. So I can't remember what his real name is. It's a normal name. And uh, he called himself Stormzy on um, on MSN. And so we helped create Stormzy somehow. It was the coolest product. And people still say, oh, it was, it was great. And Hotmail was obviously one of the first big internet brands, plus Search, plus MSN the portal site. So, you know, there's a lot going on. We started the first sort of online advertising business. I remember when the first ad was sold, a guy called Tom Bowman sold the first ad and we had to hard code it into the homepage. And then just a great, we got a great bunch of people in. We were learning. We were going to the Can Lion Ad Festival every year and being taken out on big yachts and that stuff. It was great. And that MSN team, the UK team, we were the first MSN to become profitable, which was a big deal because no one else had done that and didn't actually for years afterwards. So we got awarded, it was very funny, we got awarded the sub of the year at the awards. At, you remember we used to have MGX or MGB, big conference down in New Orleans. And so um, there were various celebrations before and I had to go on stage and collect the team award from uh, Bill Gates, Steve Balmer, Jeff Rakes, you mentioned earlier. And... Um, <laughs> I was definitely hungover. What made me laugh was this great award for this great team was a Rolex watch <laughs> given to me. I can't think of anything more Microsoft than that. That is just perfect. So the team were like, oh, show us the watch, show us the watch. I was like, yeah, it's great, isn't it? And then from then on afterwards, I'd walk into a meeting room and they'd say, oh, what's the time, Jeff? What's the time? <laughs> oh, fantastic. That's just brilliant culture, isn't it? That is brilliant culture. Yeah, and I'd like everyone to know that I've still got the watch and I still, <laughs> <laughs> I still wear it occasionally and, uh, yeah, very nice. I've only got one messenger story and it was my public set days and there was a guy, you'll remember him, Jim Gamble, who was the guy who started all of the um, protection of paedophilia stuff. But we're at this big security conference and he's the keynote speaker and I'm sat on the front with Alistair Baker, who was then, had then just become GM. And Jim Gamble publicly acknowledged his thanks to Microsoft and Alistair in particular for agreeing to put a button on MSM Messenger that kids could alert. Alistair wasn't even aware they he'd asked to do that. <laughs> and it was genius because, of course, Alistair then said yes. <laughs> and it was the right thing to do. But, yeah, pioneering. We got in a lot of trouble and kept trying to get ourselves out of a lot of trouble with a lot of that child protection stuff. We had communities and groups and we were getting a lot of public flack. I remember going to a, an event at Scotland Yard at one point and um, this guy, I was talking about MSN, and, and this detective copper turned around to me and said, you're from MSN, I want a word with you. He was one of the paedophilia investigators, and he was saying, do you know how much is on there, how much is being shared, and what's going on? And he and I became sort of collaborators and quite good friends for a while as we tried to fix it. And um, there was a big PR campaigns, and, and in the end, we just closed the communities thing down. And we did it arbitrarily, so we did it, like for the UK, which said, right, we're not going to do this anymore. And got a lot of flack coming out of the US because other markets didn't close it down. And we were like, no, it's, we're not going to do this. Yeah, it was a good decision. And, and I remember going on ITN and various places to explain it. Uh, the other thing we did was we did a bunch of stuff undercover. So we hired someone, we had someone who was sort of the protection person to work with an external company to go through, trawl through all of that stuff and find the bad stuff, close it down, but also tip the police off because we weren't allowed. There was this notice and take down policy where if you noticed, you had to take it down. 
But if you were looking too hard, then you were responsible for it. So you couldn't be sort of uh, overtly policing it. So we were surreptitiously policing it. It was a very weird thing. But we were trying to do the right thing in a very, very difficult environment. Yeah, and again, trying to do the right thing in uncharted waters. I mean, a, a silly example from my side was somebody I'd known in my sort of ISV developer days got in touch and said, look, we've got this great technology to identify what pictures are pornographic. And remember, it was Judy's days. Basically getting a message back saying, Terry, this is really clever, but it's not illegal to look at pornography. The challenge is, how do we find people looking at stuff that we don't want them to? And I think that was, you know, my admiration for you and everyone who worked in that business. And, and the reality we know it's still going on today is, do I think Facebook et al. should be doing more? Yes, I do. But I also have some empathy that says it's not as simple as it may seem. It's very, no, it's definitely not, it's definitely not. It's a very complex. It's very picture. complex. The whole, um, yeah, that balance between individual freedoms and protecting people is very hard. And we found it constantly a challenge. And I think eventually we just said, well, okay, you know, when you know something's bad, right, we'll deal with that and we'll, we'll bend the rules and we'll bend the law to make it happen. But it can get very tricky. <laughs> I remember at one point, it's slightly different and then a bit later on but I remember um, in Russia we'd launched in Russia this is much quite a bit later on but we launched video in Russia and the uh, all the US developers were very very excited that they'd um, we were doing video in Russia and so the first day was out they all went rushing over to look at it what they didn't realize was that our guy in Russia had done a deal with the equivalent of the Russian sort of Euro track. It was full of this sort of soft. I can only imagine what Russian Euro trash was. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, you probably can. And it was exactly that. Yep. And sex is spelt like when you look at sex, the way sex is spelt in the Russian, in Cyrillic language, it's alphabet. It's like, oh, yeah, that's sex. It was that. And so all the US developers go, oh, let's go and look. And they were just horrified and shocked. And next thing I'm getting messages from the bosses saying, what's all this porn on our Russian video site? And I said, no, 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 it's not porn. It's just like soft, funny stuff. I said, no, no, it's just... humorous, honestly. <laughs> they didn't get the joke. That doesn't surprise me at all. So on the subject of bosses and stuff, you have to tell us about the ILU, which has its own Wikipedia page. Does it? I haven't looked at that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, you have to go and look at it. So talk us through it, Jeff. I wasn't aware of the ILU, by the way. <laughs> well, so we had a great PR agency and a great PR team, and they were really doing a lot of good things. And part of what we were trying to do at that time was tell the idea that the internet is a thing. So we had um internet street. We wired up a whole street of people in North London and got them to sort of build a community together. We had uh, an eye bench, so we had an internet bench that was where you could um, sign up. And it was, you know, we were trying to demonstrate that the internet was more than sort of internet first, MSN second, if you like. And that's how we were trying to build the interest and the excitement. And it was coming up to April Fool's Day. And uh, I mean, I didn't even really know what was going on. I was the head of the UK, but everyone was doing their thing. And they said, right, we're doing this ILU, great. And so the ILU was basically a wired toilet to, to go to festivals. This was the story. So you go to Glastonbury or wherever, and there would be one of those toilets. That was The portaloos. It was a portaloo, <laughs> but it was fully wired. And we were doing it as a joke for April Fool's Day. We weren't actually going to build it. 
And so this story, the island, well, because of the internet, I guess, just took off. It was the most viewed on Yahoo. <laughs> well, you, um, Yahoo with you, you know, they Yeah, it's just amazing. <laughs> and so it spun over to the US and just became this huge thing. And then all the TV talk shows were, oh, Microsoft, Bill Gates is Microsoft. They're doing this island. You know? And so I was oblivious to all of that. And the next thing, I came in one morning and I've got hundreds of emails flooding into my inbox about this island thing. And the PR people in the US panicking like crazy because Bill Gates has gone, but I haven't done, what is this? Who's done this? This is a disgrace. This is an outrage. It's you MSN people. So he'd gone to the MSN people who were then panicking. And in these emails, they were like, whoever's responsible, this needs to be fired immediately. I was like, oh, okay, that's me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Process the <of> deduction. Yep. <laughs> My boss, she was upstairs. I remember storming up to her. I think I punched a plant pot on the way. And I went up, I was like, what's going on? I'm going to, everyone's going crazy about the island. And she said, what's that? So then, honestly, took a life of its own and had to go and explain what we'd done, why we'd done it. And I kept saying, it's just a joke. British toilet humour. They didn't get it. At some point, I had to go to the US and got hauled over the coals by David Cole, who was my boss. And uh, it was funny. And the thing that always stood out for me, and it happened a number of times, was Judy as a boss was just rock solid. When my son Daniel was born, he had a big heart problem and had a bunch of heart operations. And she was like, go off, look after your son, take all the time you need, do not worry about work. And the way that sort of released the pressure of what was going on was huge. And then when things like the island happened, she was just like, don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll fight them off. We'll fight them off. But the word had come down from Bill. <laughs> this was oh. a terrible, terrible thing. <laughs> so on the basis that you were dealing with lots of controversial, a controversial song choice. Well, certainly the artist. Well, so it seems. I think the All Falls Down is a very opposite title at the moment. I always tried to find new music. So I saw the Black Eyed Peas at the Jazz Cafe in Camden. I saw John Legend, I think it's called the Roxy in King's Cross, tiny place. And so I was sort of actively trying to find new music. And Kanye West I sort of found at some point. And his first three albums, to my mind, are fantastic. And College Dropout, Graduation. And I, I genuinely think they're fresh, exciting, fantastic. And then after that, not so much. And then all the Kardashian things. Like, so I've not bothered with Kanye for a long time. So I saw him, interestingly, I saw him the day after his mother died, or maybe it was two days after. But basically, he was playing in London, and I think it was the Hammersmith Odeon, but it might have been the O2, and or Wembley Arena. And he came over, and sort of halfway through the show, he said, oh, like my mum died yesterday. Everyone's like, what? So it was classic, you know, the show must go on. And then I saw him play with Jay-Z when he did that tour with Jay-Z, which was, again, was brilliant. But generally, I don't bother with him and haven't bothered with him for a long time. And the stuff that's going on with him now is shocking. It's shocking, yet and yet, the guy's clearly disturbed, out of control, and no one's able to control it or stop him doing stupid things. And so I think it's really interesting what happens with artists who go bad. So Michael Jackson, for example, when I was a reporter, I chased him. You know, he's doing a tour over here and I chased him around as we did. And, you know, it's very clear at that point that he was a paedophile. In our world, in our Fleet Street world, we knew he was a paedophile. 
I never saw Michael Jackson. At one point, I went to go and see him and the gig was cancelled. I, I liked him, but I never went. And I took the view, well, he's a paedophile and I don't want anything to do with him. And actually now, I, quite, I like his music. And so I don't know how you tie those things together, where you've got someone who's got some abhorrent part of his personality and yet is a musical genius. It's interesting for this. I was thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't have Kanye West. I could have had, I was very close to having Lola's theme by the Shapeshifters because I just think it's a fantastic, fantastic song. And I was going to switch it. I thought, well, no, actually, I really liked Kanye West at that time. I thought he was fresh, different, exciting, and something of a genius. And now, wow, it's just completely blown it. Yeah, and I think I'm absolutely with you, Jeff. And it's interesting, and again, I didn't envisage this, but it's a subject that has come up a number of times across the episodes. And I do think it's a challenge of how do you separate the artist and their art? Actually, every artist is some sort of facade. You know, I always trot out the great Springsteen line that somebody says, you know, I'd just love to be the guy up there talking about him on stage. And Bruce turned around and said, so would I. Because, you know, he's a character. I went off Bruce because of all that. So in, in his autobiography and in the stage show on Broadway, which I watched on Netflix, he talks about Bruce Springsteen, the rock star, as being a character in the same way as Ziggy Stardust was a character for Bowie. It made me re really quite angry. It's not that I fell for it. We used to laugh about the driving in the streets, man, you know, when the guy can't drive and all that sort of stuff. But maybe I just want to believe. It actually... It hasn't put me off, Bruce, but it definitely took the edge off. And without diving into the ticket thing, that's part of that for me that goes, well, how much of a character was it then? But trying to work out how do you separate the art and the artist. I mean, you look at Elvis Costello. I mean, the lyrics on that album are pretty hard. They're quite misogynist, yeah. You know, I suspect there's stuff in there that he wouldn't write now. You know, Oliver's Army said, I'm not playing it, and actually I'd rather radio stations didn't play it. But I think once you go down that line of going back and rewriting stuff, I personally think it's dangerous, but I also recognise it's a personal choice. I think it's different if you're then talking about new stuff. Yeah, I agree. I loved Ryan Adams and in fairness to him, it's still all allegations, but all of the indications are is that he's a nasty piece of work. But I go back to Heartbreaker and it still sounds like a fantastic album. If there was ever a proper me to crawl through the old rock bands and rock singers and you know, the, the way they behave was abominable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I listen to Robert Plant's Digging Deep podcast and, you know, he's now in his 70s and I just think he, he's great. And he's, but I mean, the Zeppelin days, there's a lot in there that is pretty distasteful. And I know it's easy to hide behind. It was a different time, but it was a different time. Enough of that. Before we play it, why this particular track, Jeff? This is one of the, I think it's third or fourth track on that first album. And I, it was just a very exciting, I found it a very exciting song, found him very exciting and different. So yeah, this was the one. In an exciting time. Here it is. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, falls down. This is the real one, baby. I'm telling you. Shattown, stand up. Oh, it is. Southside, Southside. We're going to set this party off right. Westside, Westside. We're going to set this party off right. Man, I promise. She's so 
self-conscious She has no idea what she doing in college That major that she majored in don't make no money But she won't drop out her parents to look at her funny Now, tell me that ain't insecure The concept of school seems so secure Sophomore three years ain't picked a career She like, fuck it, I'll just stay down her and do it Cause that's enough money to buy her a few pairs of new ears Cause her baby daddy don't really care She's so precious with the peer pressure Couldn't afford a car so she named her daughter Alexis Yeah, it's so long that it looked like weave Then she cut it all off, now she look like Eve And she be dealing with some issues that you can't believe Single black female addicted to retail as well uh. And when it falls down, who you gonna call now? Come on, come on, and when it all falls down, man, I promise, I'm so self-conscious, that's why you always see me with at least one of my watches, rollies and poshies that drove me crazy, I can't even pronounce nothing, pass that for Stacey, then I spent 400 bucks on this, just to be like nigga. I know you play, and we'll get to that in a minute, Jeff, but I'd just love to be able to play a bass line like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the vocals, <laughs> lyrics great, but you listen up, it's so like, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, Brilliant, absolutely. brilliant. I'm going to move you on to the 2010s. I would say I've got more turmoil a lot of the time, lots of changes. So um, my first marriage ended. I met Asli, who's from Turkey, now lives here with me, and we got married in 2015. Great fun, great life together. So I shifted jobs at Microsoft and was running the international media business for um, MSN, so all the markets outside of the US. And I think it got sort of tougher over... The last few years, MSN went from being you know, this sort of big, exciting powerhouse to being another Yahoo dropped off. MSN definitely dropped off. And um, we had loads of effort around things like uh, projects called Choose MSN. So the idea was that we needed to get people to choose MSN as opposed to just landing there because of various defaults from Hotmail logouts and Internet Explorer and things like that. So it became harder, but actually in some ways became a lot more fun because I had to rebuild the team. We sort of recognized that we got away from the sort of journalistic media side, the story side of, of what MSN should be. So ran around, hired lots of executive producers who came from online, from print, from TV, all around. Great bunch of people. We built a really enjoyable crowd Someone described us as, you know, I found my tribe and we were a different breed within Microsoft. That's a great compliment though, isn't it? Yeah, it was nice and it was a good bunch. And um, we're still, again, still a lot of friendships and a lot of connections. And, you know, we still help each other out. Like the German guy was, his son was, he was coming over to learn English. So he stayed with my sister down in Brighton. And, you know, a lot of good connections like that and friendships. And it was a lot of fun still a lot hard you know when you've got that massive every quarter every year you're going up and up and up you're riding the wave it's sort of easier than when you're hammering against the momentum's a great thing isn't it yeah so it was more difficult the leadership got a bit more sort of difficult so how was the move out into a different world jeff because to some extent you'd been institutionalized spending that long in microsoft says the man who spent 22 years there so i know what it's like yeah and i think that was one of the key learnings if you like so yeah everyone has that everyone's run comes to an end and i was sort of relieved and welcomed it and i've then done a whole range of different things and one of the things i sort of quickly learned was exactly what you're saying so although i thought that i had a wide-ranging and clear view of different types of businesses and actually when you've been at somewhere with that long 
your view is sort of the Microsoft view. You see it through the Microsoft lens. And so that definitely was the case. However, there's a lot of good with that. So we were all about the numbers and reviewing and tracking and monitoring. And you go to other companies and find that they actually don't do that. So just introducing stuff like that provides a lot of value. I did an amazing spell working as consultancy with Ferrari through my old Italian mate, Paolo Tacconi, which was brilliant. Never got to drive one. Got to wander around the factory at will, which was fantastic. Worked for Unilever. I was interim MD for a sport social network startup called Sport Lobster. And every day we'd say, does the world need a sport social network? The answer in the end was no. <laughs> I worked for the People's Vote campaign because I thought Brexit was a bad idea. So I worked, I did the morning briefing. So I was getting up at 6.15 and writing their morning email that was going out until that all uh, ended. I did a thing called Read Cars, which was a motoring thing. And those opportunities, Jeff, are they just things that came across your path? And most people will tell you the same thing. It comes through your network. So a lot of it comes through the connections. You know, the People's Vote campaign came through Alistair Campbell, who's an old colleague of mine from the Mirror. And when the Brexit thing was, I pinged him and said, how can I help? And um, he's put me into that. And so this is a funny story, actually. I've forgotten about this. The election was lost. Boris Johnson had won. Brexit is full system to go, you know, get Brexit done. And so the People's Vote campaign is finished and disbanded. And Tony Blair had a drinks reception for the People's Vote campaign at his institute off of Oxford Street. And so I don't know, about 30, 40 of us all went along. And so I've never seen a guy work the room like Tony Blair. We're drinking the cheap white wine and he basically sort of went from group to group to group, made each of us feel like we were the greatest person ever. Just talked to everyone for a couple of minutes each, went all the way around the room, stood there, did a lovely speech for a few minutes, five minutes. You know, we tried, we failed. It was great. Thanks to all. Boom, gone. And it was like being touched by royalty or something. And it's such a talent, isn't it? Incredible. Yeah, he was very impressive. So yeah, it's been you know lots of different things and still doing lots of different things and enjoying it, actually. Which is the important thing. And uh, that's certainly a great, great mix. So talk us through your choice then. I love Rudimental. Again, I found them at some point and I think everyone probably knows Rudimental now. And it's from a lot of their songs that have been successful. I'm not sure people know the band as such, but they're fantastic. And they're, you know, drum and bass, dance band, and I just love them. And so we've seen them in a bunch of different places, Clapham Common, Jazz Cafe, all sorts of different venues. I saw them recently in Brixton, and they're brilliant. They're completely brilliant. And we also bumped into them at a hotel in Kent by the swimming pool. <laughs> As you do. As, As you, you do. do. They, were, they were hanging out and uh, they've got pictures of Asley with the rudimentals and they're brilliant. So I would recommend anyone to go and listen to Rudimental because they're just a great, fun, exciting band. And one of the things they do is they bring in lots of guest singers and guest performers. So it's more, it's almost like a cooperative. So they've worked with Ed Shearer and then all sorts of different people and they're just brilliant. Um, Ali Pali, we saw them at Ali Pali, that's amazing. So I try and see them all the time. And actually they're my friends. So the, the gig at the Jazz Cafe, I was trying to get tickets. So I pinged one of the guys, he's called Locksmith. I pinged him on Instagram and said, look, I've been trying to get tickets for this and I'm struggling. And the next thing, their management contacted me and I got tickets. Ah, that's which nice. Which was the magic of social media. Well, it's the magic of network, you see, and that's 
It's far more important than getting consultancy, mate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, waiting all night is fun. I could have picked three or four songs by Rudimental, but I went for this one. Well, let's take a listen. And I think this is going to be more familiar than people realise. And I hadn't made the connection, but I'll tell you about that when we've had a listen. I've been waiting all night for you to, oh, oh, tell me what you want, yeah. I've been waiting all night for you to, tell me what you want, tell me, tell me that you need me. I've been waiting all night for you to, oh, oh, tell me what you want, yeah. Going back to the attractions, you know, bursting out like a cannon, I love the way that explodes in the middle of that clip. It's just absolutely brilliant. So that got single of the year in 2014 at the Brits, so it was a track was familiar. What I hadn't made the connection, I'm pretty sure you'll know this, given your love football, the instrumental version of that is the music they play on Match of the Day 2 for Goal of the Month. No, I hadn't realised that, and I actually do watch And Sky (laughs) also use it for their NFL touchdown roundups. But when I read that, it was like, I played it again, I thought, gosh, yes, so it is. So there you go. Well, I'm pleased I found a Music Talks nerdy fact that you didn't know. (laughs) A great, great track. So into the 2020s, the challenging 2020s, did you have a good lockdown? Like the first part, I love. <laughs> Probably like most people. Absolutely. Like, it was like a complete release. Yeah, you could breathe again. The, the, apart from, you know, not wanting to catch the thing and die. It was fabulous. So we were by the river in Bermondsey, uh, River Thames, and the weather was glorious. And we were going out for walks and runs, and Asley and I, and it was just lovely. You didn't feel like you had to. Basically, just it was a real release of pressure. And then I probably, like most people, eventually you get fed up with that. And so then I was very much itching to get out and do everything and, and get back to normal. And I do think people have not got back to normal quickly enough and all the rest of it. It really was that thing of stop the world, I want to get off. And it was like, I have. I had a good friend, we were on a call, this was early days of lockdown, and she was still working. And she said, frankly, I'm getting pissed off with people who are using this COVID and lockdown as some sort of personal development opportunity, to which I sat there and put my hand up and went. (laughs) But I didn't use it quite as much as you, Jeff, because you learned to play something, didn't you? I've tried. (laughs) And unfortunately, it's dropped off a bit since. When I left Microsoft, my gift to myself was a saxophone. So I've always wanted to play the saxophone. And I bought myself one. I thought, right, I'm leaving Microsoft. I'll have more time. And then I tried to do it. Wasn't very good. I was doing play in a day. And then I was trying to play John Legends. Anyway, I was rubbish. I was rubbish. I played it at my wedding. And um, 
got laughed at by my two <laughs> best men and and Asli's family in Istanbul. And so that put me off a little. I was so hoping that was going to be, and it moved everybody to tears, but they just laughed. No, no, they were just <laughs> laughing, laughing, laughing. So yeah, no, so my saxophone playing was awful. So come the lockdown, I thought, well, I'll try again. And so I found a fantastic guy called Mark Buckingham in Putney. And we did it online. So every week I had a session with him during the lockdown. And one of the things he did was he was like, don't do that plan a day stuff. I'll get you to play things that you actually want to play. So summertime and you know, various other jazz. So I was getting better and enjoying it. But the thing I always wanted to play was from the Betty Blue soundtrack, which is a movie from back in the early 80s, I think. And what's well, called 37.2 Degrees. It's a French movie and I always loved the movie, but there's a sax song on it called Betty is All. Betty is All. And so I wanted to play that. So I got the music and learned to play it and actually was pretty good at it. Unfortunately, I haven't kept going. I keep meaning to get it out and keep back and playing more. But that was definitely one of the things from lockdown that um, yeah, you had the time to do something you wanted to do. And uh, it was great. Enjoyed it. Well, I sadly have never had the discipline to actually sit down and learn to play something. So if you've got over that bridge, keep going would be my... Well, i tell you the weird thing, Terry, was that so I played violin when I was a kid and hated it and was awful. I mean, like really awful. I got up to, I think I failed grade four, but it was horrible. God knows what the neighbours thought. And then I played a French horn and that was, I kept leaving it on the bus because I hated it so much. <laughs> it's a big instrument to leave on a bus, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. The, the, the bus company phoned up and said, is this your giant thing in a suitcase? And I asked my French horn. And I had to go and pick it up off the bus as it came round again that was weird was I can still read music much to my amazement so I got music out I was like oh my goodness I can still read it which never occurred to me that I didn't think that that would happen which obviously makes a huge difference well let's take a listen because it's a beautiful piece of music here it is said it was a French film, but that's got France stamped through every note, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? <laughs> it's just so, so, so evocative. So thank you for uh, introducing me to that. And uh, it looks like the film is quite intense. I will go and give it a watch. Oh, the film is fantastic and it is very intense and uh, uh, it's very moving. 
and the music is great. And Gabriel Yarrow, the composer, and he's done loads of other stuff that's fabulous. It was a name I vaguely recognised. I looked at the profile yesterday. It was like, wow, just uh, absolutely beautiful. Just one other thing to talk about, because you mentioned that we've been trying to get together for a while, but one of the things that uh, has caused delays, you're becoming a powerboat skipper. So yes, I'm training to be a powerboat skipper. I live on the river, River Thames at Bermondsey, just down from um, Tower Bridge. And so these tourist rib boats that come down the river, they get to outside my flat and then they speed up and whiz down to Greenwich and the Thames Barrier and then whiz back again and then gently go back through the tower and up to Westminster. And so I've been watching them for a few years thinking, oh, that looks brilliant. And then at some point I thought, actually, I'd like to do that. And so I'm training down in Southampton. I'm doing lots of certificates. I'm due back up there, in, uh, down there in November to do the next bit. And then you have to do the equivalent of the knowledge for the river. So that's a whole bunch more training. So that's what I'm trying to do. And I've been really enjoying it. I've bitten off a lot more than I realized. I thought it'd be a bit like your driving test. You just learn how to drive a boat. <laughs> but actually there's a whole lot more navigation and safety and survival and God knows Making what. Making sure so, you don't kill any passengers is a key requisite, Yeah, I think I guess. that's really important. I think that's probably the primary goal of the thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to getting down to London and going on your ribs tour, mate. And uh, I love the fact of just looking at it and going, and, you know, one of the things I love about or being out of the corporate world is that thing of you can just go and do stuff. So I'm not sure it's as exciting as uh, tourist ribs, but tomorrow I'm going into Edinburgh because I'm thinking of fulfilling a childhood ambition to work in a record shop, Jeff. Oh, brilliant. Well, you know, Oxfam now get donated just so much stuff that they have dedicated music shops. And it looks like the Edinburgh one, which is in a lovely part of town as well, are looking for volunteers. So the idea of popping into Edinburgh once a week for a four-hour shift and wandering around really appeals. And my wife, Laura, said, I'm happy for you to do this on one condition. I said, what's that? She said, you have to commit that you will sell more product to people in the shop than you will bring home. (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's right. You can snaffle all the good stuff. But that's the point, is that I will get to snaffle all the good stuff. (laughs) How exciting. Jeff, it's been an absolute, seriously, absolute delight. I have my final question, which is final thoughts from you. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed our time. It's just, well, it is chatting with an old mate. So I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's great. I'll keep trying to find new music and uh, I'll keep trying to listen to new stuff and, uh, and old stuff. Yeah, it's been fun, Terry. It's really nice to speak to you. Well, likewise, Jeff, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. So thanks to you. Thanks to everyone listening. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks for the next episode of Music Talks. 